If I don't feel safe in life, I might feel safer in spirit. And if spirit becomes my uh, like a rope that I'm holding on to, then I prevent my healing and then my life won't change into the life that reflects my potential, my intelligence in the world. Welcome to the Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness Podcast. I'm David Trelevin, and this is a podcast that explores the intersection of mindfulness, meditation, and traumatic stress. In this episode, I'm interviewing Thomas Hubel. Thomas is a teacher and author of the book Healing Collective Trauma, which details a process that he's developed around integrating intergenerational trauma. He's also the founder of an organization called The Pocket Project, which is a global initiative that addresses collective trauma and is really doing some groundbreaking work in the field. Thomas was born in Austria, and after studying medicine for a long period of time, he ended up in a four-year meditation retreat that really shaped his life. His work integrates wisdom traditions with contemporary understandings of trauma, and it was great to finally meet him after many years of people recommending his work. In our conversation, we discuss the many ways that mindful attention and attunement can support trauma healing in groups, the explicit connection between personal and social change, especially when it comes to trauma, what Thomas refers to as the human rights of being, becoming, and belonging, and many other topics related to trauma-sensitive practice. I found that Thomas and I had a lot of overlap in our thinking and our interests, but we talked about these issues using slightly different language and also metaphors. So I found the conversation enlivening and engaging, and I hope you do as well. So without further delay, here's Thomas Hubel. Well, I'm here with Thomas Hubel. Thomas, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you, David. I'm happy to be here. Looking forward to our conversation. Yeah, I've been too. It's been, um, gosh, it's been probably a year or two now that a number of people, um, friends and colleagues would ask about you and I said, do you know about Thomas? And do you know about Thomas's work? And a couple of times, I think we've been at conferences where you were presenting next door and I haven't really, I haven't had the chance to meet you in person. So I've been waiting for this chance to get to connect with you. And I feel like you've been doing a lot of work and thinking at some similar intersections that I have. So I'm just really excited to to get to connect. And as a way to start, I'm wondering if we could just start for people that don't um, know about you or your work. Um, could you just say a little bit about, you know, what you're up to right now and where you've been focusing your, your time and your energy? Yes, of course, David. So I think uh, besides me 20 years ago, coming out of a four year meditation retreat and then starting to teach groups that pretty quickly grew into large groups. And then, yeah, me recognizing more and more how like spiritual and contemplative and mindfulness development actually needs to be trauma-informed and needs to be within kind of a certain level of relational competence building, how we relate yeah. to each other, how we, you know, take take care of the systems we create and the relational health of those systems. But then I think it's uh, also almost 20 years ago, 18 years ago, it started that in my groups we had, and the, my group started first in Europe and then expanded globally. But in the, in the first years we did a lot of work in Germany, Austria, the, like the Switzerland. And in many groups, like I, I had this, this kind of collective eruption of what I call today collective trauma material arise. Mm-hmm. And it was, I, it was pretty intense the first times. I mean, it's always intense, but the first times I, I, it was pretty new. And then, and then I discovered many, many principles that I also like collected now and crystallized in the, in the new book I published healing collective trauma Mm-hmm. which is that the that when we look at trauma we often see trauma as a biographical event or a series of events or a condition that people grow up in or some stuff that happens to them or even a war situation sure so the groups that learn wow there is like there are thousands of years of trauma and right. i have been born into a traumatized partly traumatized world 
Mm-hmm. And so trauma is actually a systemic effect that builds structures in our societies that is mm-hmm. part of our language, that is part of our perception, that is part of how we, how we build societies. And, and then I thought, wow, it's so important that we look at the systemic aspect and we create kind of a collective awareness of the collective aspect of trauma that includes individual traumatization. And it's still, you know, we have to look at the individual trauma anyway. Yeah. But we also have to look at the systemic dimension because that is the collective dimension that we all grew up in and we all have been conditioned by. And yeah. so we might not be aware of that systemic dimension because it's kind of invisible to our feeling and sensing and understanding. So I think I, I spend a lot of time and then kind of globally in various parts of the world exploring like where major wounds like a Holocaust, like structural racism or uh, slavery or genocides and happen how we actually live in the aftermath of that. So that that was a very interesting and is still a very interesting research field and process field that I'm that I'm working with mainly. Yeah, I, I can understand the people that inspire me the most are often making connections between personal and social. And and that's one of the reasons I think people had been directing me towards your work is that you had done just some deep thinking around collective aspects of trauma and then what it means to be born into cultures that are um, experiencing trauma and that there's some historical trauma and how that gets, you know, uh, really expressed through the mind and body. And I'm curious when you talked about the groups, I don't know what the groups were that you were doing, but what do you, what do you think made it possible um, that people were feeling either safe enough to express some of the collective trauma that you were naming or what had it come to the surface. Uh, I'm curious what, either what practices you were doing or how you'd mm-hmm. assess um, why, why that was happening uh, in, your, in your groups. Right. Yeah, that's beautiful. I think um, same as uh, in your work, I think one of the... Um, core elements of course is mindfulness presence like being being compassionately engaged in the process that's happening right now like process awareness and and um and when we look at that uh within a group we i often say the coherence of the system is the resource that can integrate the fragmentation and if the fragmentation mm. is stronger than the resource, so the trauma will preva- prevail basically and will be repeated in some sense. And the yes, fragmentation right. repeats itself. You see this right now in the political or in the landscape of society, U.S. society. We can see the fragmentation. We can see its symptoms, but we don't see the invisible trauma layer underneath because that is hidden. We just deal with the symptoms. Right. and. Right. And so in the groups, I said, okay, when relation and presence are the two main remedies, so then we intensified the relational attunement, the relational capacity in the group. So we practice certain exercises and relational attunement practices. We also like internal, like within myself contact with myself and with others. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then also presencing through contemplative practices and, and mindfulness practice. So that creates in the group more and more trust, more and more togetherness, more and more list, deep listening and representing each other within each other. So when I listen or when I meet you, you already, there is a David in my brain right now, <laughs> right, in my right. perception, and there is a Thomas in yours. So true. the more we are aware of that inner internal representation, we actually, we are in each other anyway. And the clearer that representation is, the deeper we will experience intimacy, connection, yeah. Uh, yeah. deep compassion, care, yeah. and so on. And I experienced that from a certain level of group coherence. It's like as mm-hmm. if the collective nervous system feels safe enough in every one of us or through every one of us to release that collective information. And Mm -hmm. then 
often first, at first it comes up, well, the first thing that comes up is this collective denial, the heaviness, the suppression, how we suppress trauma information collectively. But if we can stay present to that, then it turns around and it brings up deep emotions, pain, stored information, according mm-hmm. to that specific collective trauma. And then there's a whole digestion process and integration process. And I often say trauma always creates two, a question and an answer, separation, othering, and so on. And the integration of trauma creates post-traumatic learning. So yes. every, yeah. every system learns through trauma integration. Yeah. And so that's what we basically, that's a shortcut, of course, that's a simplification of um, what I think is needed for us to feel safe enough mm-hmm. and trust enough that, that, that we can actually become the conduits of the collective past to become alive through us, find a physical, emotional, mental attention and digestion and be integrated and lead to the learning of the individual, the group, and the society. Well, this is great. One of the frames that I hear you using is around integration, um, that I hear you speaking about trauma somewhat as a disintegration or something that is un, unmetabolized um, in the system. Right. And when I hear you talk about the group, when you talk about both attention and attunement practices, that's beautiful to me. It sounds like both increasing the kind of intra-capacity that someone has to be present with themselves and then also with other. And so it sounds to me like you are increasing the overall, I don't know, resilience or the capacity of a group to move through what has not been felt or what was too much. And one of the questions, so I'm curious if that, if I'm reflecting that back to you, if that seems accurate. Yeah, it's accurate. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's great. Well, one of the, you, you mentioned the U.S., uh, as a potential, um, you know, political, this, this moment politically around polarization. And then when you just mentioned being in certain countries around working with historical trauma, the Holocaust, for example, I don't know if I've had many experiences of a collective moving through that kind of traumatic material in a way that's integratable. Like one of the things that happens that I've experienced is that there's a, there's a fracturing. It's like the system can't hold the nuance and the complexity that doesn't just break down into right, wrong, or you're, you know, you're bad, I'm good. And I'm wondering if you could talk about, maybe if you could bring in meditation here, but are any examples of ways that you have seen a group kind of move through some of these bigger pieces? Cause it's just, I, I just don't feel like I have a lot of reference points and I know that you've been doing a lot of deep work here. Yeah. Yeah. I think, um, I mean, we have done this with groups of th- around a thousand people, let's say large groups. Wow. wow. And, um, and if we, if people come because that's their interest and like we did that in a university in Berlin and they, and many people that came, of course, they wanted to have uh, an honest and deeper look at the, you know, Nazi past and the uh, Second World War past of Germany. And we did this also with the video conferencing with Israel. And mm-hmm. and these are very strong collective unconscious forces or forces in the trauma field. And... And the fragmentation is very strong. That's why the guidance. So we had, I think we, there were four, around 40 therapists and facilitators oh, wow. in the room. And it was a big wow. thing that we, yeah. so that there is a safe place there. There can be one on one process work can be done. And there is a, a good holding of the whole of such a large group. And we call this collect, a CTIP, collective trauma integration processes. And, and the, um, when we, when the fragmentation shows up and there's the right guidance and we can really allow the fragmentation as a necessary defense pattern in the human nervous system, but mm-hmm. we are, so we are not falling prey to it unconsciously. We allow it because that splitting in millions of people's psyche was an important survival process. Yes, when bombs right. are raining down on cities, right. 
like it's it's a very unsafe environment and or when people are in concentration camps of course and the people that that i talk to that you know survived concentration camps these are unbelievable experiences i mean the 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 pain and the suffering is so unimaginable that it's so deeply understandable how we split off parts of ourselves severely in order to survive. And yeah. so when we can stay present to that fragmentation and we can, we can even feel the numbness that arises and allow it to turn it back into feeling, like into emotions and into like that the suppressed material can surface through us again, then, then the fragmentation actually moves into a kind of an integration and a resilience, a, a systemic resilience. But yeah. as you said correctly, it, what often happens is because as societies, we don't have yet, even in the constitution, I think, of every democracy, we need an anchored law of restoration, like a law that restores the the collective traumatizations or the, the bigger traumatizations of the country. Because if we don't do it, we are um, part of what Freud called the uh, repetition compulsion, that the, mm-hmm. that the um, trauma will reenact. And even if it's 50 years later, 100 years later, or even more, but it will have to resurface and, and um, repeat itself if we do not take care of it. And I, th- I think that's what we see right now in many places around the world because there's a global stress factor that heightens the fragmentation like COVID. But then yeah. there is the, the old wounds are simply showing up again much stronger. And, yeah. and they are, this is seduction to get enrolled that if I'm on the Republican or the Democratic side to say I'm right and the others just don't get it, is so easy. And once I'm enrolled in that fragmentation, because it always makes intellectually sense, but mm-hmm. I don't see how I am already enrolled uh, and I'm a function of the fragmentation. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. how we create societal support to host the fragmentation in a different way, I think that's our current challenge. And I think that's great that we talk about that because we are both interested in that uh, work. Absolutely. What, I mean, that question, what are the structures that would need to be in place for significant reparation or repair or healing? Yeah, I've been fascinated by that individually, have trained in, in psychotherapy. So it was a very individualistic systems approach, but the people that I'm inspired by, like you, are, are kind of widening that lens out and saying, quite literally, what would need to be in place in a very right. practical way to allow that? And I wonder who who are your guides here? Who are your mentors, or your teachers? I asked that. I just met a woman named Pumla Gobodo Madikizela, who, I don't know if you know her, but she did. She was part of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission in South Africa. And it was so powerful to hear her talk a little bit about literally what they did to turn and face apartheid and to have it actually see if it can move through the collective system. So she's kind of someone that I looked to, but I'm wondering who are your mentors and teachers uh, that, or who do you look to to help you uh, work with collective trauma? Yeah, that's interesting. I um, I often say that the I mean there are many people like I, I at the time when I still studied medicine I was deeply inspired by you know multiple people like Ken Wilber or Aurobindo mm-hmm. or there there are multiple people that I I really studied their work and then I went to, uh, in, into this four year meditation retreat and but then my um, I often call it reading in the book of life. So my main inspiration, I shared this today in another group. I said, you know, human rights are composed out of three rights. There's the right to be, which is space. And what we cultivate in the mindfulness practice is spacious awareness, reflective awareness, uh, presencing. 
but it's also the capacity to digest life. If someone doesn't have enough space in life, inner space, a space to reflect and digest, we will simply be in a kind of an overactivity. Mm-hmm. And we find ourselves that our life is designed to be over, overly active. But that's a, a lack of space. So children, when we grow up, as, as you know, as a psychotherapist very well, but for many of us, space, a child has a right to be. To be a child. So when the child learns whatever it learns at a certain age. So when I'm three, I'm three. And when I'm five, I'm five. And I do what I do at that level of my development. But when I'm five and I need to be the mediator to take care when my parents fight that I feel somehow safe, that that is me sacrificing being and replacing it by doing. Mm-hmm. So that early childhood conditioning, and if a child is not being safe or nourished or has continuity of relation, as we know, then all those factors lead to an imbalance between the right to be, the right to become, which means potential development, the creative development of your intelligence and my intelligence and her intelligence, like that we are interested, but when we are interested in each other's intelligence, we are always working in the emergent process of life, which means when you work with a client or with a group, I'm sure that you often walk away and you learn something. Mm-hmm. You're inspired. You have new ideas. Why? Because you touched the becoming of people in your groups or in your, in your clients, in your one-on-one sessions. So I call this learning from the book of life so that every one-on-one session, every group, every large group, is a kind of a, a, a studying and teaching process also for me. So in, in many of my groups, I walk away, and that's actually my deepest teaching is the revelation that I experience through the work itself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, there are people that I go to for uh, kind of some supervision and some reflection and some, some uh, after-processing. And then... So the right, uh, just to finish the one thought, is the right to be, the right to become. And the third right that I believe composes human rights is the right to belong, building meaningful relations. Mm -hmm. So the first one, being is space. Becoming is energy, intelligence, or expression. And belonging is relation and structure. Because every relation we have becomes a structure in our brain and becomes a structure in my life. And every company we build is built on structures that in the good sense are adaptive, in the rigid sense are kind of held and and don't want to move Mm -hmm. with the movement of evolution. So the right to be, to become and belong, these three forces, I think, are the forces of human development or development of life. Now, um, why I'm saying this, so that's one inspiration is... The, the, the process itself that inspires me. And then the other part is that, like the big, the writings, for example, in the Jewish mysticism or in the Taoist mysticism, the, the inspiration of thousands of years of kind of timeless knowledge that has been updated by various people throughout the thousands of years, Mm-hmm. Um, together with the scientific um, uh, neuroscience or trauma science or psychology or social sciences, like the dialogue between those is a is a deeply inspiring um, process for me. So I think the mm-hmm. the dialogue between science and mystical science and the learning out of the life process, and then of course. Many people that I, I meet, they do, like we did this collective trauma summit and many people I have conversations with, you know, that are like doing great work as, as yourself and others in the world. So every, um, every great interaction or conversation is a learning for me yeah. too. Yeah. yeah. So these are yeah. just a few. Yeah, I love it. I love it. I hear, you know, looking to life uh, as a teacher and then of course others as well. And 
this frame, I'm really interested in this frame around the the rights of the three, the be- being, becoming, and belonging. And one of the, actually, one of the questions I have about it is one of the first ones I wanted to ask you, which is, you know, on a more general level, what do you think about the relationship between meditation and trauma? <laughs> it seems like a place uh-huh. to start, even though we're a little bit in. Because when you talk about, when I think of being, being the right to be, the right to be, become and belong, when I think of trauma and oppression and oppressive forces, I think of trauma as a deep interruption of each of those three, what you called rights, or what feels like a, a motion or a movement to me, that uh, whether it's inside of a family or in any kind of structure where there's an impingement or an interruption of that natural process, even childhood, the example that you gave, I think of the three or the five-year-old just just coming into their five-year-oldness, that life, and then trauma happening and interrupting that beingness or maybe belonging. And so I'm wondering if you could, for, for all of us who have experienced different individual experiences of trauma or have been born into communities and collective histories of trauma, where do you see meditation either helping or hindering the integration right. of mm-hmm. those of those wounds? I know that's a huge topic, it's a huge but, question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But great because we're you know we can unpack it a bit. Um, first of all, as you said, that uh, every trauma is hurting the right to be, the right to become, and the right to belong. And the restoration of of trauma is the restoration of human rights. And the restoration of human rights is a restoration of what I call the law of life, like how life can develop in a healthy way throughout generations. And so once I know that trauma comes with hyperactivation and numbness and dissociation, so there's a lot of stress in one part of myself and then there is an absence or a numbing or a kind of a disconnected, fragmented part on the other hand. And of course, there are degrees of severity and um, complex trauma. But let's talk about this too. So when I meditate, meditation, first of all, is an amazing, <laughs> like an amazing field. And there are so many <laughs> different types of meditation. So, so yeah. Um, but meditation can be both. It can be an amazing resource. And I think, I guess in your work, the, when you bring a mindfulness meditation and presence into trauma healing as a resource, it's fantastic because it strengthens actually my capacity to be present with, and yes. then to bring that presence. And then here, I think it starts as a process awareness into life and i think that's where the that's where the decision is being made if it's supportive or not because if meditation is my bypass tool not to face my difficulties in life and try to escape into a better world then it serves actually my defense if it's right. if it's used like that I can use the fruits of my contemplative practice in order to strengthen my capacity to be even more in life. And in life means I need to go through my traumatization because that was the reason why I moved out of life, out of my body, out of my emotions, out of my, you know, relationships. So if it supports me to become more relational and deeper embodied, then it's a fantastic blessing. But yeah, Trauma healing goes through an embodiment process and a deeper rooting process because my personal trauma, my attachment trauma happened because my parents were traumatized and they were traumatized most probably because their parents went through the Second World War. And so the ancestral trauma that is reflected in my attachment trauma is all one interdependent system. Mm-hmm. And so they belong together. They, we cannot separate them. Oh, my grandmother had a trauma in the Second World War, and that's why, and that's different from my attachment trauma. No, it's encoded in my attachment trauma, and, and the whole system is one chain of experiences that are inter, 
connected and interdependent. And, and I think if, if meditation can serve that embodied transcendence, like transcend and include, then it's fantastic. If it's, yeah. Yeah. if it becomes my, if in general, if when the spiritual practice for many people that experience trauma, it became the safe haven when I cannot live in my body as a child because my environment is so not conducive to me being open and relaxed in my body, like mm-hmm. sometimes the transpersonal, transcendent dimension becomes my anchor. Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. so scary to let go of that and come absolutely. back into my body. Oh, absolutely. And so once we have that on our screen, I think, and that's more and more people do that, so then I think um, we create very good mixtures. Yeah, I've met, I've met a lot of people in part from having now have this the, the book around trauma-sensitive mindfulness. I just hear a lot of stories, and I can't tell you the number of people I meet who say, I think similar to what you're saying about I'm kind of taking refuge in a transcendent experience, but they were saying, wow, I didn't realize that I was actually in a highly dissociative state. Exactly. And, you know, I was getting, but they were, what was tricky is that they were getting sometimes a lot of, um, not support, but some, some kind of, I was going to say props from their teachers who were saying, wow, you know, it's amazing that you can sit still (laughs) for so long. And then this painful realization of ways that the practice has both served them over time, but also kept them hiding from a lot of pain. And that can, I think, elicit a real crisis. So I love what you're saying about uh, kind of the, the, the ways it's it's a very delicate balance of knowing when it can very much help, but also places that people can end up getting stuck. That's so beautiful what you're saying. And if in the meditation we get stuck in dissociated spaces, or if if we get supported actually to be to hang because if if I don't feel safe in life, I might feel safer in spirit. Right. And if spirit becomes my uh, like a rope that is kind of that I'm holding on to, then I prevent my healing and then my life won't change into the life that reflects my potential, my intelligence in the world. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. I will always need to have that kind of refuge and create it for me. And I'm part, still part of polarization. And I'm, I'm also not progressing really in my spiritual, on my spiritual journey or development because I, I don't manage to harvest the energy that is stuck in my body that is part of my evolution. And mm-hmm. you said it very beautifully. If, if that's supported by teachers that don't recognize the trauma, also because sometimes simply like a lack of skill, sure. then we are part of the stagnation of our clients and people that study with us. And I think more and more, like your, your work and... Uh, other people's work that combine those um, two worlds, that's very helpful. And also, like Ken Wilber wrote a lot about the pre-trans fallacy or confusion, you know, when early early developmental states are com- being confused with transpersonal states. Mm-hmm. And so to create a spirituality that has a, an integrated map where we can... Um, where we know also where we are operating, like what's the territory that we are walking through and, and guides that know the territory because of their own practice mm-hmm. and also integration. I think that's fantastic. And I think then we will also dismantle a bit the, the, the discrepancy between activism and inner work because Yes. There are many activists yeah. that criticize the contemplative uh, communities because they say they are not doing anything. The house is burning and they're just sitting around or looking at right. themselves. Or the contemplative say, yeah, but they're just reenacting their own trauma. They want to make the world safe because they're traumatized. Right. Or they're just, you know, unconsciously en- like enacting some stuff. But I think if we can heal that fragmentation, that's the same as we said mm-hmm. before. It's also like still a fragmentation. Mm-hmm. And it represents internal realities 
I was, I'd love to ask you about examples for you, because I, I think this is where you and I have some ex, um, overlap or we, where we're both interested is people and communities that are really um, not falling victim to that polarization that you're describing around either, either it's individual healing or it's organizing and social justice work. And that there's, there can be a beautiful integration and synthesis between the two. Uh, and just one quick example that I got to um, learn about was a group, um, they were doing work with a, a group here in the U.S. called the National Domestic Workers Alliance. Have you heard of them at all? Oh, no, I didn't. <laughs> it's beautiful. So it's this um, large group of domestic workers here, domestic workers, you know, people that are working um, in families, could be childcare and hospitals. But this has become a large um group here in the US often a very uh, of undocumented citizens who then don't necessarily have a lot of rights in their work anyway they were doing they've been doing a lot of fantastic organizing the last you know maybe 8 10 years um, with this group the National Domestic Workers Alliance and what was embodied in this group was largely um, a collective appease that mm. under under pressure for very understandable reasons that's rooted in both individual and collective experiences of trauma, I'd say the nervous system of the group would really move towards an appease move or trying to make those in power more comfortable. Mm -hmm. And then, But where this became such a powerful embodied process was to say, if we're going to achieve and win victories, um, in this political organizing, we need to do our own trauma healing work so that we can be more powerful, powerful organizers. And so it was so powerful to hear and learn about this group doing individual trauma healing that was rooted in history, but then also in the service of like real on the ground organizing and, and getting wins and more rights for people that were doing work. So anyway, just one way that I've seen that, that, uh, weaving and i'm wondering if either in your life or groups that you've worked with any other examples of ways that you've seen um this integration because I, th I think it's kind of rare and i think many people are looking for kind of mm -hmm. data points about mm -hmm. where they can where it's being done yeah that's beautiful first of all i love it uh, the example that you i will look it up um it's beautiful, and I and I deeply believe that, as we said, the integration of spiritual or contemplative practice and trauma healing will bring these two worlds much deeper together. Yes, and I also right. see that, um, for example, like one example from my own work, my wife Judith and I, um, in 2016, created a nonprofit organization called the Pocket Project, and so yeah, we're I, doing... I've heard about this. I'm excited to ask you about it. Yeah, and so. We, at the moment, we have um, multiple projects, but one layer of work that we do is um, we, there are 23 what we call international labs all around mm -hmm. the world. So there's one on, on racism in the U.S. There's, there's one about uh, or two in Africa and um, dealing with the colonialism uh, between Europe and Africa. And then there's, you know, Middle East, Holocaust, Latin America, and so on, mm -hmm. Asia. And... We, we are exploring with uh, every lab has a certain amount of people, somewhere between 30 and 100. And then we are going through a process and we are creating a meta-learning structure, how we can, through like the inner work, and there are many people that are local leaders or, you know, are people that run projects in the world or in their world. And, um, and they, we come together to explore, to heal, but also to learn and feed it back into the organizations or into the work that people are doing uh, out there in the world. So that's, that's interesting. And um, also we are looking at, at creating collective trauma integration processes for whole states. Wow. So if, for example, Rwanda or Germany and Israel or uh, even the U.S., I mean, there we are not uh, so progressed at the moment, but the, where, we, where we find connections to local organizations and develop plans how, like, 
With the local infrastructure, we can create a collective trauma integration process that, of course, takes a few years, like years, but sure. it's, it, we, it's, a, it's a system that can expand. And so every state or country can start to take care of their internal fragmentation. So here, the Middle Eastern conflict or the Holocaust or the immigration history to Israel or the immigration in the U.S. or the Native American genocide or slavery. I think these are all very interesting processes. And another community that I um, I really love what they do, like um, Otto Schammer uh, and uh, the whole Gaia project or the Gaia University project. Like Otto is also trying to put together like the theory U, the presencing practice and how we apply it to all kinds of systems and organizations but also more and more uh, applying inner integration work and awareness-based work to create like a, a landscape of um, human development and how Otto calls it vertical literacy, like the literacy of uh, human development. And so there he and I are very, like we have also dialogues like we have now and it's very inspiring so i like uh, there and there's social presencing theater and other integration and you know awareness-based um parts a part of his work mm-hmm. so that's another example that i that i really appreciate i mean there are for sure more i could talk but not to make no, that's it wrong you know my uh, colleague of mine her name is paula ramirez she is in colombia and i think doing work there around um, uh, state violence and was a part of a pocket project, I think either in Colombia or she's been doing work around the UN and talks about just how transformative and powerful it's been for a collective to purposefully in a very embodied and conscious way, turn and face what has been often disappeared or what is collectively often swept under the rug. And I'm wondering, this pocket project I'm wondering if you could talk about uh, like vision for us here that if you, what is the world that you imagine if these projects were successful? You could take any one, but if you imagine these seeds of transformation happening in Mm -hmm. the pocket project groups and then maybe that rippling out, can you just talk about What's the the either the world you vision or that you're fighting for in in doing this work around the pocket project? Right. Yeah. First of all, I believe if if you just look at uh, racism and structural violence in in the U.S., I believe you know there's one there's the part the activist part where we need to take care that the re-traumatization stops and that the human rights are being reinforced and that uh, on that we do whatever we can do on a structural level to support equality and and, and growth and expansion mm-hmm. but it's not gonna work so easily without taking care of the frozen underworld that keeps those symptoms in a way in place Mm-hmm. So one thing that I would envision that we create multidisciplinary teams where we have people that are great in doing and creating outer projects. And there are people that are great in the healing and integration work, because I often say human development um, consists out of three forces, if you will, that is similar to what I said before. It's like evolution, becoming, and then habits, belonging, creating structures. But I can, I can change structures even through activism or knowledge mm-hmm. or training, I can change structures, open them up and build new ones. But when, stru- when habits are being confused with trauma and I create pressure on trauma, what I get back is a resistance and even a counter pressure. Right. So I cannot, that's what in the climate change movement is happening, that we, we put a pressure onto the traumatized parts of the society and not activation energy to activate structures in our society to open up and build new ones that are more timely than the ones we had. Maybe, you know, that many business structures or there's many things that are obsolete that need to change. But the trauma cannot change through the same intervention. So multidisciplinary teams that have joined competencies. Yeah, yeah. And 
that we where we support each other and bring our compass. So then the, the activists don't say, ah, the, we don't have time for healing and integration. And the others say, yeah, but it's an unconscious intervention that we do it together and everybody does does what he or she is great in or at. And we, yeah. we, we do this together. So that's one. That's and the one. other one is, I think if we start to create in 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 some through some pilot projects like restorative processes in some states or countries or areas around the world that will become because we will see that healing or de-icing or melting the collective trauma layer will yeah. set free so much energy for our evolution that it it will speed up our capacity to to respond to collective challenges and and i often say that that um like you know when you live in the world in a world where fog is normal mm. so you we are used to drive our car at a speed of 30 kilometers per hour because that's how far we can see so that driving is still safe and we all know how it feels when we drive in an whatever early like winter morning and it's still everything is yeah. is uh, foggy. And yeah. then we know how it feels when sun starts to shine through and the fog lifts and suddenly I don't see only 50 meters I see 5 kilometers if it uh, if it's clear. Right. And and I believe Trauma healing, at the moment we are so used to the visibility, to a reduced visibility, and it became our world and our collective agreement that that's the world. And I'm saying that's the world with the current state of traumatization and consciousness. But there's another possibility if we integrate the fogginess, which is the trauma fracture fracture and fragmentation and and, uh, unconsciousness, and if we integrate it, we can actually see together much further into the past, into the innovative future. And especially, we can see each other much more and feel each other much more. And I think that's, that's a little bit of the, like a transparent world, a world where we see each other much deeper and much more honesty and right relation is being restored between individuals, communities and states I think that's um, the world that I potentially see if we become aware of thousands and thousands of years of mm-hmm. traumatization of life. It's powerful because when I hear you talk about, the, I love that metaphor of the reduced visibility in the fog and then what becomes possible in the clearing or in, right. in opening up more. That is, it's beautiful. It makes me think of, um, under traumatic conditions, the challenge to vision, to actually see a different way forward. Um, and it, you know, it makes me think of an interview I saw you do, or it was a talk with, um, Peter Levine, mm-hmm. the somatic mm-hmm. experiencing creator. I think one of you was talking about trauma as a disorder of actually not being able to be in the here and now the, right. the present moment is just, is just psychobiologically experienced through a lens of a past harm, whether that's historical, whether it's an acute trauma from a year earlier, but that we're reliving through the present. And that, that limits a certain way, not to shame anyone or any, any of us that have experienced trauma, but it just limits our capacity to respond creatively to something happening in the present moment. So I love what I hear you saying is, Oh, it would actually just give us a lot more room to respond to the, you know, legitimate crises that we're facing on so many different fronts right now. That's right. That's right. And, and, and it will also help us to change a bit, uh, as you said, beautifully is if, if we understand like that, I love the comparison between the two words, karma, karma term in the far East and and trauma both indicate postponing of experience Mm -hmm. so what i cannot experience right now what's overwhelming right now i either split or fragment or park somewhere in order to to digest it later 
Yeah. And so every trauma creates a past. And in my understanding, integrated history is not the past. Our integrated history has this conversation right now. Mm-hmm. So all our ancestry and all our experience, yours, David, and mine, we all that integration are structures of consciousness that are able to, that I can feel you, I can resonate with you, we can, we can be in this resonant conversation together because of the open flowing parts and integrated parts in our bodies, psyches, emotions, minds, and so on. And so integrated history is presence. And Mm. presence is seeing, I see. And unintegrated history is the past. Even either individually, that my fears of my, my attachment fears of my childhood are affecting me taking decisions every day, affecting my marriage, affecting my whatever. That would be an unintegrated part that is the past, but it keeps me busy today. But every time I feel that fear and I don't take a decision when I need to take a decision, I'm actually identified with that past and it Mm -hmm. affects my moment right now. So... But we have a a notion of time currently that the past is behind us and the future is in front of us. And I would say, no, often the past that is behind us becomes the future in front of us. And so we are actually taking the highway from behind our car and we're putting it in front of our car and we are driving the same highway again. How often do we have similar relationship fights? How often do we have similar behavior patterns? How often do we enact similar or do we experience similar thought patterns and emotional patterns? That's not the future. Even if it happens tomorrow again, it's not going to be the future. It's a repetition of the past. So tomorrow is not necessarily the future, but the future are the innovative, creative, and groundbreaking insights that I always have only now. And that's very powerful because that's where presence is the chance to integrate the unintegrated past. And it's also the birthplace of the real future, which is not mm-hmm. ahead of us, which is in here now. Mm-hmm. And I think just opening up our understanding of time that the past is the unintegrated energy that we couldn't experience, that is is very powerful, I believe, because then it means, wow, we have a chance to integrate the past and use that unintegrated energy as individual and collective learning. And I think that's a very, that's a very, so presence is a very powerful um, function. Mm. I think that can help us to restore our world and it, and it happens also through shared relation. Every time you sit with a client, you're actually offering presence for the integration of the past. So we are making the world bigger by integrating the past into now. The, this I've never thought of it. I, the highway metaphor and the way you're talking about past and present is not as new, it's new for me. I hadn't thought of it that way. And you're naming to me some of the the genius of our systems our nervous systems of our our minds our memory to as you said take an experience that was unintegratable and then karmically as you were as you mentioned to then have it arrive in the present moment with the possibility of bringing presence to that experience and then by therefore creating a different future and so to me, you're talking about some of the highest expression of mindfulness, meditation, and trauma, of continuing to bring, bring presence to whatever's arising, making space for that. And then who knows? It just then, to me, it goes off into a thousand directions uh, where we, we can't know where we're going, but it seems like it has limitless um, potential if, we, if we're really showing up moment to moment. That's beautiful. And then, and then we can see how many structures in our life and in, in our society we build 
on that unintegrated or out of that unintegratedness and right. out of fears and out of past and out of shame and out of guilt and out of so there are so many building blocks of our society that are bricks of the past but there's another option and it's a mix always that there's emergent future there are emergent relationships there are emergent structures that are willing to build the where we are willing to build structures but when we see evolution needs something new so we can deconstruct them and reconstruct them into something that works simply better yeah, and then right. reality becomes much more fluid and i think Presence is often in the, the Tao Te Ching is a wisdom book that I really love. It's the Wu Wei Wu. It's, it's called non-action, but what it actually says is that, that I'm as fast as the water of the river. So mm. I'm, I'm not creating a push, a pressure, and I'm not creating a resistance, a slowdown or withdrawal. I'm as fast as the movement. And that's an experience of a flow state. And mm -hmm. A lovely metaphor that I like is that when, you know, experience and open emergent relation is like snowflakes falling into the water of a river. And every time the snowflake falls into the water, it melts and it becomes water. Mm -hmm. But when there is an ice over river or trauma, then the snowflakes fall onto the ice and there, there they pile up. There's just more and more snow on the ice. So if follow-up experiences touch our trauma layers we can't digest and experience it and it creates challenges problems issues in our subjective experience or collective experience and then it actually cannot become the flow and it's being experienced as a stagnation yeah. and so trauma healing is is always de-icing the river that the current experience i'm having I can respond to, but in order to respond to it, I love the English word. I often call it responsibility instead of reactivity. Reactivity is reacting in form, is kind of an action informed by the past. Mm -hmm. And responsibility is I experience you, I hear you with my body. I hear you with my emotions. I hear you with my mind. I'm related to you. I feel you. And then I can respond from my core back to you. And I think that creates a whole different experience of life. So the iced over river mm -hmm. or the open river, the, it, these are two very different experiences, how we, or modes, how we experience our reality. Yeah. And I think we can be much more in the river if we pay attention to trauma. I, I do too. I really appreciate that image, Thomas. I mean, it resonates with my own life of when I was iced over. I mean, I still, of course, have those layers, but the longing for the snowflakes to touch the water. Mm. And I could feel that buildup. And then there was just this deep longing and sadness of the fact that I couldn't feel, I couldn't feel a lot. Okay. I couldn't feel a lot of joy. It was even hard, you know, to feel anger. It was just kind of a flatness and how to, to me, it was like how to do trauma healing work without shaming myself that the ice is there. Like to have some deep, deep respect for those layers that were protective and that keep things, kept things somewhat frozen and how to have reverence while at the same time keeping, um, working towards that melting mm. that you're describing. So I mm. love, I love that image. Thanks for sharing that. One, one more thing I want to share when like, um, as a response to what you said, I think I want to underline very much what you said right now, because I think it's a key element of healing, the deep respect for the defense mechanism. So every child that grows up in a family system that is lacking internal coherence, like yeah. safety and relation and support and so on, the child needs to start to create that inner coherence through defense mechanisms and protect itself. And so yeah. when we are grown-ups, we often shame ourselves. We call those childhood heroes dysfunctions. Yeah. And you said something very profound and beautiful that I want to underline because for so many of us, we are going through the phase where we say, but without that, it would be much better. 
And I would say, no, because of that, you became who you are. And now maybe there is time to examine that more, to come more again in, in an intimate relation with those mechanisms and let it, um, and maybe we'll find that they are not necessary anymore today, but we cannot get rid of them. And that split between weakness and strength in our society, in assessment tools, in all kinds of ways, I think we need to find something new. And what you said is part of that newness that we see in defense mechanisms and the, the parts of us that we often judge are very intelligent functions that we don't understand fully. And I yeah. think that's, that's very powerful. I think that's very essential for every integration process. I agree. I sometimes wish there was a pill that I could take that would enable me to have more respect and reverence for those defenses. Like when you said that about, you know, the moments where you're like, well, but maybe actually this could be, this is enabling you to, to who, who you're meant to become. God, and in the moment that it's challenging, it's like, this is not how I want it to go. <laughs> right. It's, it's so freaking hard. Very so much so. Stay yeah. in, you know, stay in, so... Well, um, I've really enjoyed this chance talking to you. Is there, is there anything that we didn't cover that you want to speak to before we um, uh, move towards closing here? Um, no, first of all, I really enjoyed the conversation. I feel a lot of resonance with you and, uh, and, and uh, the quality that you, like, you know, the trans your transmission and the quality you, you bring into the conversation is very beautiful. And I hope you can stay connected and see what's unfolding together. And, um, and the other part is, I think our conversation points towards like an awareness process that unifies what looks so separate. When trauma always creates two, the restoration of trauma creates not two. Mm -hmm. And the big mystical traditions were always or are always looking out for the not-to-ness of life. And I think through the understanding of trauma, we, we get more and more, we become more and more aware of the architecture of separation that has been described throughout thousands of years by various mystics and, and also then later on through the scientific um, process. We, we learn more and more about it. And I think if we can apply the best of the mystical scientists and the best of the science scientists. Today, we, we create one important not toolness. And I think if we can apply the same in our societies and when we get triggered and when we experience difficult moments and we can, you know, become that sounding board where fragmentation can find inner integration, mm -hmm. I think then we we definitely open up more possibilities in our future and the future of the next generations. And I think our conversation is simply a part of that exploration. I would love, Thomas, to keep talking to you about that. Thanks for all you said, too, about our connection here. Just a light bulb went off as I'm learning more about you, the ways that I think you are drawing from certain wisdom and contemplative traditions into a more contemporary, um, you know, neuroscience-based approach to trauma. When I see you really working with these worlds, I would love to keep, maybe this could be part two down the road of uh, around um, uh, duality. And I'm so interested in the ways that trauma and oppression and pressure more generally will split us into, as you said, into the two, which okay. seems to be at the basis of so much oppression, you know, of exactly um, good, bad, right, wrong, or um, who's in, who's out. And, and so anyway, I just real I'm, I'm starting to understand ways I think you're bridging and bringing in a lot of different traditions. So I'm, I'm just excited to keep following where, where you and all the people you're working with head. Yeah, me too. And if we come up with this uh, part two, I'm very happy about it, David. It's a pleasure and it feels very resonant to me. Great. Thank you. Yeah, to be continued. Thank you, Thomas. 
That brings us to the end of this episode of the Trauma Sensitive Mindfulness Podcast. Thanks for listening. Thanks also to Thomas for taking the time to come on the podcast. If you have any requests of people that you'd like us to speak with or topics that you'd like us to cover, please feel free to write us at support at davidcherlevin.com. For those of you that are interested in trauma-sensitive mindfulness and are newer to the topic, we have a new free webinar um, on my website at davidcherlevin.com. It really covers uh, some of the basic tenets of trauma-sensitive mindfulness, and it's there free for you if you'd like to check it out. We also have an online course that we just launched this past fall, which we've gotten some great feedback on, so encourage you to check that out as well. It's all available on my website at davidcherlevin.com. Thanks for listening, and talk to you again soon. Thank you.